Welcome back, besties, to another episode of the Spooky Ripped Jean Mom. My name is Peyton Kennedy, and I am so excited to do part two to Eileen Warnos. Um, so just sit back, relax. There's not much business stuff. Nothing much has been going on in my life that I was like, oh, I should update them about. Um, I did make a friend, however, being out here. And let me tell you why that's a big deal. Because we just moved. And I have one friend here already. She's actually my next door neighbor. And we knew each other in Washington. She's super, super sweet. I love her to pieces. Um, but she works a full-time job, which there's nothing wrong with that. I'm very proud of her. She runs her own business. She's so successful. I am so, so proud of her. But during the day, if I wanted to do something, she's at work. So that kind of sucks. So I made a friend. She's also a stay-at-home mom. She's super duper sweet. She has, um, she is kind of like me in personality, which I love. So I'm very excited to say that. Also, when I first moved here, I don't know if I told you guys this or not, there was legit a girl missing. And I was like, well, great. I am not going anywhere by myself. Like no one knew who did it. And then they finally found the guy who did it. And his work bailed him out of jail because they didn't have enough evidence to prove that it was him. So his work bailed him out. Um, so I feel like I might do an episode about that. A couple upcoming episodes to get you kind of excited. Um, we're going to finish up part two with Eileen Mornos. I also am going to post a spooky episode after this that I'm going to have. It's Thursday. I think I'm going to have it come out on Saturday. I'm going to record it um, today and have it posted ahead of time but I'm gonna have it set to post on Thursday morning and then um I think I'm gonna make a series about the haunted places in South Carolina one because South Carolina is my favorite place two it is one of the most haunted Charleston South Carolina is one of the most haunted cities in all of America so I think that'd be really cool the first one isn't too like spooky um, just because out of all the votes, we only had like one or two no's on it. And so this way it's not too like, uh, jumping right in, but it's, it's really fun. It's a place that I've been to. It's called Pugin's Porch. I love it so much. Um, and it's a cool like story and history. And then for Georgia, that episode I'm going to record I'm going to see how long the first one's going to be. I thought I could split Eileen up into two parts, but I could have just done her all in one. Um, so I'm going to see how long I get with the first part of Georgia because it's about the 29 missing, murder, missing and murdered children of Atlanta. And that one is kind of... Instead of doing a... Georgia over like the most notorious serial killer like I've been doing. I did it about the most notorious notorious serial killings. Um because it is 29 kids, but there's a lot of like hoops cuz it took place in the late late 70s and early 80s. Um especially back in Georgia when the KKK was still a big thing. Um and so that one's just kind of it's been solved in quotations, but it's not really, in my opinion. Um, but the first part's been kind of long because I do talk about the victims more um, and things like that. So he might be 
Georgia might be two parts. I'm not for sure yet. We'll see how long I get on the first, you know, episode. And if that one hits the 45 minute mark, it, I'll make it a two-parter just because I know that a lot of people really like that I keep it under 45 minutes. Um, so we'll try to do that. Fingers crossed. So let's jump in to Eileen. We, on the last episode, talked about how she had been caught and like what she had kind of said about each victim and things like that. So we are going to jump into why Eileen said why she did everything. Also, side note, I do have my dogs in my room with me. Paisley's asleep. So, I have the door closed and the dogs are with me. So, if they randomly start barking, it's because they heard something outside. And when Bailey's not home, they feel like even if a leaf blows across the road, they need to bark at it. So, if you hear any barking, I promise I'll pause it. I'll tell them to be quiet and then we'll get back to it. So, Eileen said she did everything in self-defense and that all seven victims had either tried to rape her, assault her, or had threatened her. Now we're going to fast forward to November of 1991 when a woman by the name Arlene Prale and her husband Robert decided that they were going to adopt Eileen after seeing her picture in the newspaper. Arlene had said that she had looked into her eyes and she just looked lonely and lost and in need of love. Uh, At the time, Arlene was 44 and Eileen was 35. And when they first met, Arlene, in quotes, said, I felt fulfilled, a sense of completeness and confirmation that what I was doing was correct and that others didn't know her like I do. So Arlene, just a little bit about her, she was a born-again Christian. She ran a horse breeding and boarding facility near Oklahoma, Florida. And then in 1981, before she helped Arlene or Eileen, She ended up helping another family, a husband and a wife and their two kids, um, from an abusive situation. I don't know exactly what that abusive situation was. It didn't go in depth. The documentary I watched didn't even mention anything about that. Um, I found it in an article. Um, So I'm not 100% certain what the abusive situation was there. But... She did admit that she became obsessed with helping this family and it ended up causing her and Robert to split. She ended up moving in with her dad and then that ended up not working out. So she moved back to the ranch. Um, And when she got back, she realized the family had stolen all of her credit cards and all of her jewelry. Then she did commit suicide. She had a suicide attempt. That's the proper wordage I wanted to use. I couldn't think of it for a moment. She had a suicide attempt um, and it put her into an institution. But after that happened, her and Robert ended up getting back together. So in the newspaper, it talked about how Eileen had been abused. Um, She had lost, she was left by both her parents. Um, She was, she had done, had been exposed to drug abuse. I can't get my words together. Um, how she was a sex worker as a teenager and her multiple suicide attempts herself. And then after a couple days of not being able to forget Eileen, that is when Arlene reached out to her via a four-page letter. So a couple weeks later on January 30th, 1992, Eileen ended up calling Arlene in jail and I guess they ended up talking for hours 
One of the victims, Troy Burris' sister, um, said, in quotes, she is a sick woman. I thought I heard everything until the other night when I heard she adopted Miss Warnos. She sets religion back 10 years. So obviously, Letha is talking about Arlene adopting Eileen. Uh, and at this time, no one really had no idea what was going on. Um, besides the fact that Eileen had said it was in self-defense. Nothing had come out about any of the victims um, with possible abuse. So it was just kind of like a he said, she said situation. But she said was had murdered them. Um, so Marjorie Sims, she was in the, she was the sister-in-law to Peter Sims, was baffled. And she said, she talks about compassion. All the victims of their families, where's the compassion for them? So some believed that Arlene was planning on writing a book for profit or sell, like selling the story for a movie. But due to the Son of Sam laws, which if you have not heard about the Son of Sam, he is a very, very evil man um, that I will probably end up covering. She could not profit off, our, off Eileen due to the fact that her, Arlene and Robert are technically now her legal parents. Um, Arlene was described, has described Eileen as bubbly, outgoing, and someone who loves to read nonfiction, does pen and ink drawings, and often writes poetry. So we're going to kind of go back a little bit. So she had written to Arlene the first time on January 30th, 1992. Um, but 15 days before that, on January 14th, our, um, Eileen went to trial for the murder of Richard Mallory. So we're kind of going to get What the heck did I just say? So now we're going to kind of get into um, the trial. And there's going to be a lot of legal mumbo jumbo that I'm going to try my hardest to explain in the simplest way possible. So hopefully my ADHD does not word vomit spill out and make things impossible to understand because a lot of factors are playing into this she claimed our Eileen claims self-defense um with that being said some of the victims did have and I'll get more into it some of the victims did have a history of abuse while the others didn't and so now it's kind of trying to piece together what did happen and what didn't happen why things are allowed in tri this trial that normally aren't allowed, um, why things that are normally allowed weren't allowed, things like that. So, fingers crossed that I do my best. Um, so, normally, previous convictions are inadmissible in criminal trials under the Williams Rule in Florida. The prosecution, however, was allowed to introduce evidence related to her other crimes to show a pattern of illegal activity, which... Some cases we've seen this, other cases it hasn't. And a lot of times, sorry, I had to pause for a minute because I don't know if you heard at the very end that like tunnel noise, but that was one of the jets flying over the house. We live on a naval air station, um, so jets are pretty common to hear. They're flying a little bit lower than normal, so they're doing like a different training exercise. Um, but it was like, it was rattling the house. It was super, super low. And they've been doing back and forth. So if you guys hear anything, if it's not too loud, I'm just going to leave it. But if it gets too, too loud, I'll turn it off because it was insane. 
like a couple weeks ago, I went in a Safeway because that's where our Starbucks is. And Bailey stayed out in the car because Paisley was asleep. And there was a loud boom. I didn't hear it. But I came out and he was like, did you hear that? And I was like, no. Um, what happened? He's like, it sounded like an explosion. Like I thought we were under attack. And I was like, great, we're under attack. And I got freaking Starbucks. What kind of, what kind of story is that? But um, we read on the Facebook page for here that one of the jets had broken the sound barrier, which I guess when it's happened before, it's never been that loud. But um, it's, we're not supposed to break the sound barrier, but in some training exercises, it's impossible. Um, like there's no way around it just because they have to do like in case of war exercises and drills. And sometimes you have to take off really, really fast and things like that just happen. So if they end up coming back around and it's not too loud, I won't pause it. But if it is too loud, then I will. Okay, I'm done rambling. Sorry. Um, so like I was saying, normally it's kind of a hit or miss. There's like 50-50. Some cases allow you to um, bring in previous criminal activity up. Some don't. I think as like a majority, I think it's a good idea because it kind of shows the character. Hold on. Okay, hopefully we're good because literally we are 13 minutes in and I've had to pause more times for freaking jet noises than I've ever had to do in my life. So like I was saying, I personally think not just with this case, just like as an overall statement, I think if you have someone on the defense who has a criminal background, that should automatically just be brought up, no matter what. Because a lot of people are like, well, then they don't get a fair trial because their jury will just assume since they were, since they've been a criminal in the past, then they had to do it. But I think it goes to say something about people's characters. Not a lot of people are going to agree with that. That's like a kind of a big statement to say. But if there was someone up on the stand for murdering and raping someone, a, like a 18 to 25 year old person, let's say, then if they've had a history of abuse, it just shows a pattern and how they've escalated. Here comes another jet. So that's my... I think a majority of the cases, you should be able to bring up the criminal activity. Now, at the end, I will tell you what I think should have happened um, and what I truthfully believe. Right now, I'll just give you what I was given from documentaries, articles, court here, like the court records, things like that. So the Williams rule, you're probably like, Peyton, just get on. What does Williams rule mean? I don't know what that means. That was when Williams versus State in which evidence of collateral crimes is admissible and at jury trial when it doesn't go to prove the bad character or criminal prosperity of the defendant, but it is used to show motive, intent, knowledge, MO, or lack of mistake. So Eileen's trial was held in Volusia County, Florida. Trisha Jenkins was the chief assistant public defender of the 5th Judicial Circuit, and she represented Eileen at her first trial, where she only ended up having one trial. She pled no contest uh, or guilty to the subsequent murder charges. We've talked about no contest in a previous episode. I can't remember who it was for, 
but no contest just means they basically plead guilty without having to say they're guilty. Um, and after the first trial, a private attorney was hired. His name was Stephen Glazer. I hate this man. I hate this man. I hate this man. I also hate Arlene. Don't know if y'all, I didn't say that in the, pre I didn't say that in, you know, five minutes ago when we talked about her, but I hate her and I will let you know why when we get to it. They're both terrible people. Anyway, so the prosecuting attorney, DA states, uh, attorney John Tanner, Judge Earl Blount, um, came out of retirement specifically for this case. So the prosecuting attorney was DA John Tanner, and then Judge Earl Blount came out of retirement specifically for this case. Um, and then Stephen Glazer, I went on my rant about why I hated him, or like that I hated him, but he was to represent Eileen and arranged those pleas of no contest or guilty. So, the prosecution's case was, the case was based on Eileen's confession that was videotaped, dismissed Eileen's initial statement that all seven victims were killed in self-defense, they also stated that Eileen's stories varied. In her earliest confession, Eileen said Richard Mallory picked her up while hitchhiking and they later went into a secluded wooded area so Eileen could perform, sec perform acts that she was paid for. Um, she and Richard began arguing and she said she felt Richard was going to roll her, which basically means take her money and rape her. Um, Eileen reached for her bag that she kept her gun in and Richard grabbed for it. This, of course, led to a struggle, um, but Eileen ended up getting her gun, well, getting her bag back that had the gun in it. She pointed it at Richard, and then she said, in quotes, you son of a bitch, I knew you're going to rape me, which then Richard responded, no, I wasn't, no, I wasn't. And at this point, Eileen shot Richard at least once while he was still behind the wheel. He crawled out of the driver's side and managed to shut the door. Eileen said she ran around to the front of the car and she shot him again, making Richard fall to the ground. Eileen then shot him twice more, went through his pockets, hid his body under a piece of rug, and then stole his car. Eileen had told police that she had given Ty inconsistent stories about what happened. In one story, Eileen told Ty that all she did was find a dead body under the rug in the woods, but then she later confessed to Ty that she killed him. Um... So, in the first taped confession, Eileen never even mentioned that Richard had raped her or tried to rape her. She was more focused at that point on the first confession um, for police to know that Ty was innocent, which I don't believe Ty was innocent. If your wife or girlfriend, I can't, I believe wife, they were dating, they were together, fiance, when your significant other is confessing to you that she killed someone and you don't go tell the police you isn't that what an accomplice is or like I don't know I felt like with all the mental health issues that Eileen had she needed Ty to help her and Ty failed on that aspect here goes another freaking jet okay the jet's gone now so um I think that as Ty being her significant other, she should have gotten the help Eileen needed because Eileen didn't 
her mental health was so shot she didn't know what to do in my opinion um Ty was able to convince Eileen that she would be prosecuted unless Eileen fully cooperated with the police Eileen made easy convo with her interrogators and repeatedly told her public defender to be quiet I took a life I'm willing to give up my life because I killed people I deserve to die so Eileen's defense had their case ready to go and they argued that Eileen's confession was involuntary and in violation of her right to due process. She was read her Miranda rights and was provided with a def public defender but the defense said because the police used Ty in getting a confession from Eileen that it messed with her mental state that she ended up not having a rational understanding of her rights and advice from her lawyer which was true. She worked her main goal was to make sure that they knew Ty didn't do it. She told her attorney to hush that she fully did it, which she did. She fully killed them. And we know how bad her mental state has been because of the abuse that she went through as a child and the drug abuse. The drugs, they like, not marijuana, but other drugs kill brain cells. So it's like, what the only person that's ever shown her love is telling her that she could go to jail because of what Eileen's done. Eileen's not thinking about anything else besides this is what happened. And it's caused her to change her story multiple times. So the judge and the trial courts rejected the defense's case. They also denied the defense's motion to not allow the videotaped confession as evidence because the confession had already been leaked to the media. So it was out in the open. Everybody knew about it. So in later in interviews, Eileen went into detail with police about her self-defense claim. She explained she had offered to perform sexual acts for money with Richard, drove her to an isolated area to drink, smoke weed, and talk for five hours, that Eileen said she was drunk. Around 5 a.m., Eileen said she got naked to perform what Richard paid for. She told Richard to remove his clothes, but he said he was only going to unzip his pants and didn't have enough money for Eileen's fee. She said she went to put her clothes back on, but Richard put a rope around her neck and threatened to kill her, in quotes, like the other sluts I've done, in quotes, and then tied her hands to the steering wheel. Then, in an even later interview, Eileen said that Richard raped her both vaginally and anally. He enjoyed Eileen crying out from pain. With this, Eileen believed that he was going to kill her, so she started a fight back. That's when Richard said, you're dead, bitch. You're dead. Um, this is when Eileen grabbed the gun out of her purse. They started fighting over the gun. This is when she shot Richard, but he kept coming at her, so she shot him two more times. Her attorney did not want her to testify, but Eileen went against it and did it anyway. It's her right to not testify. The prosecution couldn't call her. But once she testifies, any refusal to answer questions from the prosecution and the defense can be held against her by court and jury. So in her testimony, she kept claiming self-defense, but in cross-examination, she became agitated and angry. This is when her attorneys advised her to not answer any questions um, and she invoked her fifth amendment right this is the right against self-incrimination so instead of perjuring herself she just invoked it um but she did this 25 times and if you're like man that kind of sounds familiar what but like 
can you explain more when you watch crime shows and they're like up on the jury or they're uh, doing their testimony and they go I plead the fifth that's what your fifth amendment right is to just not invoke yourself but she was the defense's only witness so the defense also brought up the issue that soon after her arrest not only did Ty go to the media but so did three other detectives and they sold the story they got money from this so because of this people started questioning how many of the witnesses started to exaggerate their stories so they could get more money so at this point with ty and the police selling the story for money and now the question on if the witnesses have also sold them like sold the story for money it's really hard to determine what was true and what was not. And with Eileen changing her stories a bunch, the only things that stayed consistent was Robert didn't have enough money to pay her for what he had said he would for the acts that she had said she would do f for that price. Um, as well as the fumbling for the bag with the gun in it and then the shooting of Richard. Other than that, there's not, everything else was just changed all everything all the other details something else was different within the stories if that made any sense so it's kind of hard to determine what happened and because of the witnesses and the stories that have been changed so now the verdict was eileen was found guilty of all charges including first degree murder armed and armed robbery the jury only took two hours to come up with this Personally, I think it should have taken longer with the witnesses selling stories for money, with the stories changing. That's a lot to pick through, as well as what she claimed happened. Like, she was voicing that she was raped, that all these things were happening, but it only took two hours to look at all the evidence. It to me, that sounds like they just assumed from what they read in the papers before this happened that she was guilty. Um, Eileen's response when she heard this, I think shows the mental state she was in. Um, she said, in quotes, sons of bitches, I was raped. I hope you get raped, scumbags of America. Um, so now that they have sentenced, that they have found her guilty on this charge, they have to do a sentencing. Well, the sen sentencing is called a pen penalty trial. It's held in front of the same jury, but it's a whole completely different trial. That's it. Um, so they, um, would determine if she should get the death penalty or life in prison since it's first degree murder. Eileen's Trial began January 28th, 1992. Again, this is two days before she called Arlene. Um, so the state called expert psychologist Dr. Bernard, Bernard to testify. Um, he said that Eileen suffered from borderline personality disorder, which if you're not keeping up with the Johnny Depp versus Amber Heard case, that's exactly what Amber Heard has been diagnosed with as well um and antisocial personality disorder for Arlene not Amber Heard fuck that bitch um he agreed with the other experts that Eileen experienced impaired capacity and mental disturbance during the crime but concluded the impairment wasn't substantial and the dis 
disturbance wasn't extreme. He also agreed there was evidence of non-statutory mitigating, there we go, evidence such as Eileen's mental problems, alcoholism, disturbance, and genetic or environment deficiency. So when Eileen's childhood was brought into evidence, the state had two witnesses from her childhood, Lori Grody. Now, hold on again. The jet has now passed. Um, so Lori Grody was Eileen's biological aunt, but like adopted sister in quotation, since her grandparents raised them as siblings. And then Barry Warnos, her biological uncle and stepbrother. And you might be being like, hey girl, why didn't it, they have Keith? If you don't remember in the first episode, Keith actually died at 21 due to cancer. Um, so Barry said that his dad laid down rules and was someone to look up to. The dad also being named Lori, not to be confused with the sister aunt person. So now Barry did say he never saw his dad beat Eileen, but she was occasionally spanked. And when she turned 10, the discipline became more tight in quotations. He also mentioned that Eileen's biological father was abusive and a criminal type, also in quotations. We know that he was the criminal type. He legit went to jail for sexual assault on girls. So they brought in evidence to prove why Eileen should not get the death penalty and just life in prison. Um, So the defense introduced the trauma Eileen had faced from her childhood, beginning with her parents' separation. When she was six, she was burned by a fire um, that she had set with her brother. She was raped at 14 by one of her grandpa's friends. And six months later, she had expressed she was pregnant. Her grandparents blamed her. Grandpa sent her away and made her give the child up for adoption. Um, he went. He made her go to a mom's home. Like a, oh, not a mom's home. But it's when like unmarried women get pregnant. They go to these houses and then like nuns take care of them in quotations. And then once they give birth, they put their baby up for adoption and they basically get to go back home. Um, it's so people don't know that these women were pregnant. It happened a lot, actually, like in the early 1900s, where like people of sophistication would send their daughters if they got pregnant, but they weren't married um, and they didn't know who the dad was or the dad didn't want to be a part of their lives. They would get sent there because then no one would know. Like they'd be like, oh, she's on a trip. And then she'd have her baby and come back and be like, yeah, my trip was wonderful. But really, she's like scarred for life. Um, because I heard the nuns are mean. So three defense psychologists concluded Eileen suffered from borderline personality disorder, which we know, um, that she had extreme mental and emotional disturbance, and she exhibited evidence of brain damage. Defense attempted to portray her as someone who lived through a horrible trauma and violence and no one helped her, who later just lashed out on another person who was going to traumatize her, which... I truly do not think she was in the mental state for prison. I truly, truly think she killed seven people and that is absolutely terrible. Do not get me wrong. But she has brain damage, mental and emotional disturbance, borderline personality disorder. She definitely, rather than going to jail, needed to be put into a mental institution where she could get the help and medicine that she needs. Now, I'm not saying let her back out. 
Like, that's she needs to be there for the rest of her life, but in the mental home where they can look out for her. Because if she really does have brain, brain damage and all of this other stuff, why would you put her in a jail where she's not going to get any help and it's just going to get worse? And you don't know what she's going to do in jail. You know? Like, you don't know. But the jury's recommendation was the death penalty. The vote was 12 to 0. So all jurors thought she deserved the death penalty. Five aggravating circumstance and one migrating factor were present. So again, you might be like, Peyton, what the heck does five aggravating circumstances and one mitigating factor have anything to do with why she'd get the death penalty? Well, you have to have five aggravating circumstances and one um, might, might, I just said that word, mitigating, there we go, Um, factor for this to work, like to be able to say the death penalty. So the first one for the aggravating circumstances was that Eileen had previously been convicted of a felony involving violence. Two, murder was committed during a robbery. She said multiple times she thought he was going to skip out on her. Hold on. Leia came up to me and said she needed love. She whined a little bit, so she got that. She's now laying under my desk. Um, But like I said, in all of her stories, Eileen had said that Richard was going to rob her. That Richard had said he was going to rob her. That she thought Richard was going to rob her. The third circumstance was murder was committed in order to avoid arrest. I don't think murder was committed in order to avoid arrest. I think she hid the body in order to avoid arrest. But I don't think she murdered to avoid arrest. That that part, that one doesn't make any sense to me. Because she murdered him in self-defense. Not in order to avoid arrest. Um, and murder was heinous, atrocious, or cruel. So I think Leia just needed some water because she came back up and whined again. And I was like, what? But then I realized we've been up here for almost an hour trying to get this recorded because of the jets. And I was like, oh, she might be thirsty. So I got her a little bowl of water. Don't worry. She's good to go. Um, so four was murder was heinous, atrocious, and cruel. To me... Yes, she shot him multiple times. She walked around the car, shot him. Like, she definitely wanted him dead. And we don't know. We weren't there. To me, it seems like she kind of just, like, blacked out. And she took out her childhood trauma she had and just wanted him dead so he couldn't be alive to do it again. Um, and then five, the murder was cold, calculated, and premeditated. I don't think it was. In all of them, they paid for her to do sexual acts to them. And then they either didn't have enough money to pay, didn't want to pay, or they tried to rape her. I don't think it was premeditated. I think she had the gun for her safety. Um, especially because when you are out on the streets, Leia's playing right now. I'm so sorry. Now, the one mitigating factor, which means why she fully shouldn't get the death penalty. From what I read, it's like, oh, but, you know, she does suffer from this or like this is a mitigating factor, um, is that she suffered from borderline personality disorder. But the jury believed no matter what, she knew right from wrong. 
The judge found five non-statutory mitigators, which were that Eileen suffered from antisocial and borderline personality disorder, may have been physically abused as a child, her biological dad and grandpa committed suicide, her grandma died an alcoholic, and her mother her mother abandoned her as an infant. In my notes, I put momther, M-O-M-T-H-E-R. So that's funny. The judge agreed with the death sentence and sentenced her to the electric chair on January 31st, 1992, one day after she called Arlene and talked to her on the phone for hours. So now, after the trial, Ty made several book and movie deals selling her story with Eileen. And so did the three detectives on the case, who later resigned. Um, the detectives said and maintained that their intentions were to put the money into a victim's fund, but I couldn't find anywhere where that had actually happened. Okay, so have any of you guys watched a Dateline? If not, you should. They cover cases like this, things like that. Well, on February 11th, 1992, or sorry, November of 1992, Dateline reporter Michelle Gillen discovered Richard had been in prison for 10 years for violent rape in another state. Yes, you heard that. The victim that she was just on trial for, for killing in self-defense because he was going to rape her, in quotations, because that's what she said, had been in jail 10 years prior, for 10 years, for rape. So it's not completely out of the realm that this was going to happen again, especially because in all the stories, Eileen never said or never changed the fact that he was going to rob her or didn't have enough money. Just saying. Just saying. Then, and can we, can someone explain how a Dateline reporter found this out, but none of the police, when they were doing the investigation and had to do background into the victims to see if this could even be plausible, found out, like they didn't find out that he had been arrested and was in jail for 10 years for rape, but a reporter did. Detectives had said that there wasn't any evidence to support what Eileen said. And all they had to do was check the federal criminal records and they would have found out that Richard was in jail for rape. So the judge, though, would not allow the new evidence to be added in the post-trial, meaning Eileen was not allowed a post-trial. And after the, the trial, it was revealed that Arlene received 10 thousand dollars for an interview with Nick Broomfield and you might be wondering but I thought she wasn't in it for the money exactly Nick Broomfield was the guy who did the documentary about all of this which by the way his documentary about Arlene or Eileen Warnos was called Life and Death of a Serial Killer um, and it's 2002 interviews. So if you're like, man, this is really not up to date with what Netflix is putting out, that's because it was literally 20 years ago. So now part of the money that I, Arlene got, so part of that $10,000, went to Eileen's new lawyer, Stephen Glazer. Um, Chief Assistant Public Defender Trisha Jenkins said Stephen mishandled 
all of Eileen's cases and appeals. He didn't pick up the discovery files for Eileen's case, even as he prepared her case in Marion County. Instead, Stephen filed a notice that he was taking over the case to, and to change Eileen's no guilty plea to no contest on the same day. Um, Miss Trisha Jenkins said, in quotes, he told me he was taking the case because he needed media exposure. Now, to me, when I watch this documentary, I would not, Stephen, Stephen is like one of Amber Heard's lawyers. Like he's not Amber Heard's lawyer, I should say, not even on her defense team, but he should have been because he acts just like them. Like she was in for like not guilty and he changed it to no contest. And it was like, he just never knew what he was talking about. He wanted the, t he wanted money from this. And when Nick was doing the documentary, he's like, I haven't seen money and you're not going to talk to Eileen until I see my money. And he's like, I'm not giving you the money until I can get guaranteed to see Eileen. And he's like, well, then you're going to have to bump up your price. And like Arlene said, she wasn't in it for the money. But later on, when Nick goes to interview Eileen, when he finally gets to, the money that he gave never even was to go to Eileen's book. So like she could get shampoo, like buy stuff there at the jail. And she never received an ounce of money never once received an ounce of money. So to me, I don't think Arlene did this out of the goodness of her heart. I totally think she did it because she wanted to sell the story. She wanted to look like this wonderful, amazing woman who adopted this poor victim of child abuse. But that was not the case. She wanted money. She saw dollar signs. And if for whatever reason, Arlene Prail is listening to this, you're a fucking bitch. Period. And you know what, Stephen Glazer? You're a bitch too, period. No one helped this woman when she needed help. She had psychologists say she was mentally unstable. She had no idea what was going on. She just saw trauma and no one helped her. No one helped her. So anyway, on March 31st of 1992, Eileen pleaded no contest to the murders of Dick Humphreys, Troy Burris, and David Spears. She said she wanted to get right with God. During this time, Eileen was starting to question Arlene's intentions. She began to suspect she was only in it for the publicity and money. And with Nick Broomfield, she told him about how Stephen and Arlene were telling her ways that she can kill herself within the jail. She also thought they had her plea no contest because Stephen was too inexperienced to handle a multiple murder trial. June of 1992, Eileen lost trust in Arlene and pled guilty to the murder of Charles Karskadon and received her fifth death sentence. February of 1993, she pled guilty to the murder of Walter Antonio and was sentenced to death. Now, during her plea to the court, she maintained that Richard Mallory, the man who had been in jail for 10 years for rape, had did violently rape her. But she said these other men, the six other victims, had only started to rape her. May 15th, 1993, Judge Thomas Sawaya gave Eileen three more death sentences. Eileen turned to the assistant state attorney, Rick Ridgway, and said, and I quote, I hope your wife and children get raped in the ass, motherfucker, while making awful gestures. Uh, she was never convicted of the murder of Peter Sims because his body was never found, but she did confess. So, 
I'm going to list the victims, the date of murder, and her sentencing, the date of sentencing and what they recommended. Hold on. Ebby and Leia started playing with one of Paisley's slippers because it looks like a bunny, so I had to take it away uh, because it's Paisley's slipper. So, um, victims, the first one was Richard Mallory. His date of murder was December 1st, 1989. And on January 31st, 1992, the jury recommended death. And that was 12 to 0. Dick Humphreys was killed on May 19th, 1990. His date of Eileen's sentencing was May 15th of 1992. And they, the jury ruled death, but it was 10 to 2. Charles Carskadon, he was murdered on May 31st, 1990. And on February 5th of 93, the judge ruled death. David Spears was killed on June 1st, 1990. And on May 15th, 1992, he, Eileen was sentenced to death again, 10 to 2. Troy Burris was killed on July 30th, 1990. He, she was, Eileen was sentenced to death on May 15th, 1992, and that was 10 to 2 as well. So Dick Humphreys, David Spears, and Tori Burris was all together. That's why there's the same date, same jury number. Peter Sims was killed on September 11th, 1990, but since no body was found and she was not charged for it, there's no sentencing date, but remember she did confess. Walter Antonio was killed November 19th, 1990. Um, she was sentenced to death on February 4th of 1993. And that sentencing was the jury 725. They did file a direct appeal. Um, so in Florida, that has to go in front of the Supreme Court of Florida on behalf of the defendant who has been sentenced to death. Can't be waived by the defendant and they must be given legal representation. So, um, someone has to file that for her, for Eileen. And Eileen can't deny it. Like, it has to be filed. Anyone can file it for the death, if they have the death sentence. So, Eileen was assigned to assistant public defender Christopher Quarles. On November 16th, 1994, the Florida Supreme Court confirmed her conviction and the, and the sentencing. Eileen filed a petition for writ of certificate, certif, certiorari, I don't know what the heck I wrote there, in the U.S. Supreme Court, but was denied. Uh, we're now over the 45-minute mark, but I promise my notes are almost done. Like, we're about to wrap it up. So this one was definitely a longer episode than the last one. Um, so the post-conviction proceedings happened from 1994 until 2002. Eileen argued that her original trial counsel didn't provide effective representation, meaning the example that they gave was failure to find out about Richard's past. Penalty hearing, no one brought was brought in that could have, like, you know, collaborated her own like ch awful childhood and potential witnesses said in later interviews that the only people to contact them was the media so police didn't defense lawyers didn't prosecution lawyers didn't no one contacted potential witnesses to back Eileen's story 
besides the media. So to me, it seems like the media was more concerned about making sure she got a fair trial than her own defense team. So they also argued that she was not effectively evaluated for her competency to stand trial. To get the death penalty, which I think I explained later, but to get the death penalty, they have to do evaluations to make sure that you know why you're getting the death penalty and what the death penalty is and what happens when you have the death penalty. So in 2001, Eileen fired multiple attorneys and dropped her appeals. Some attorneys reached out to the Florida Supreme Court to say they didn't think she was stable enough to be executed. Eileen wrote motions to the court about how the prison staff were abusing her. She claimed that they were tainting her food um, with dirt, saliva, and urine, and that they were abusing her. Though, they were, she was told, the media was told, that any and all of her claims were looked into and investigated. Every single claim was rejected by the state and federal appellate courts. Appellate courts. Now, to me, that doesn't tell me anything. I don't trust that because the same people that are supposed to look into the victims, see if to corroborate any story, just like actually investigate, didn't do their job, in my opinion. And I don't think that these people would have done their job because that means that they would have had to do you know, they'd have to fire people or they'd have to say that like Eileen Warnos was right and is right about this. Then it makes them look bad. And people in the government help people in the government. Um, so on September 30th, 2002, Governor Jeb Bush, and you might be like, hey, Peyton, that name sounds familiar, but I'm not 100% where I know him from. Well, that is because he is son of former President George H.W. Bush and the younger brother to George W. Bush. Uh, so Governor Jeb Bush granted stay of execution and ordered a mental examination to determine if Eileen was competent to be executed. And like I said, he had done this so because an inmate can't be executed unless they understand why they have been sentenced to death, and what the execution results in, which is death. Three psychiatrists examined Eileen, and they all three concluded she was competent to, be, competent to be executed, and the stay was lifted. An Ohio group called Florida Support filed a stay of execution for Eileen, claiming it was for her extreme mental illness. This motion was denied. So the last meal has to be under $20. And she actually opted out of this for just a cup of coffee. And on October 9th, 2002, she was executed by lethal injection at the Florida State Prison. And before she was executed, she said, and I quote, I just like to say I'm sailing with the rock and I'll be back like Independence Day with Jesus June 6th. Like the movie, big motherships and all. I'll be back. She died at 9:47 a.m. She was the 10th woman executed in the US since 1976. She was the second woman to ever be executed in Florida and she was cremated and her childhood friend Don Botkins, who I said would come back up, scattered her ashes beneath a tree in Michigan where she was originally from. And that is the life, crime, and death of Miss Eileen Warnos. Now, like I said, 
I personally think that the justice system didn't do her right. I do think something needed to be done because she did kill seven men. But I think with Richard Mallory's past, we could say that she was telling the truth about being raped. And I know not everyone's going to believe with me. And that's the awesome thing about where we live. We are entitled to our own opinions. No one is right. No one is wrong. I was born in 97. I don't. I wasn't there when all this went down. We don't know what happened because we weren't there. But I do think that rather than the death sentence and jail time, she definitely deserved a mental health facility um, where she could go and get the help she needs. Because I truthfully do not think that she was in the headspace for all of this. I, I think with Ty coming in... And being like, oh, they're going to put me in jail. I think she said she whatever she could to get Ty to not be in trouble. And I really truthfully think she deserved more help than what she got. I think the adults in her life when she was a kid, teachers, things like that, should have intervened sooner. I think when she was first arrested for everything, I think her first husband should have helped her. I think Ty should have helped her with her mental health. I truthfully think that she, instead of the death sentence and jail time, she should have been in a mental ward and had gotten that help and the medicine she needed and the therapy she needed because it's not right. Um, with that being said, the next episode is our spooky one and it is the ghost of Pugin's porch. Uh, it has history from, you know, the not, like late 1880s, early 1900s. It also was about a cute little dog. Um, and it's one of my favorite places to eat when I go to South Carolina. So I can't wait for you guys to listen to this episode. I hope you guys like it. I can't wait for you guys to hear the next episode. Um, and I'll talk to you then. Don't forget to subscribe to this and on Apple and Spotify. Don't forget to like my Instagram where we post pictures. I haven't posted Eileen yet because I was waiting for part two to be done. So um, when this is up and posted, check me out on the spooky underscore ripped jean mom on Instagram. And like I said, don't forget to send me some of your guys' like spooky stories. If you guys had anything with like kidnapping, something that's like a favorite one of yours to like read about. One of my favorite things to read about was the Ohio girls that were locked for 18 years in that man's basement. Um, one, because they made it out. But two, I like doing this because I like to look at the psychology and the brain of why criminals do what they do. So I will see you guys at the next one. I love you. Bye.